I want to address the handout I gave you. I, I decided, as I was studying a little bit on Monday, uh, going over this material again, particularly um, if you might remember, we left off with that verse 10. As each of you received a gift, charisma, use it to serve one another. And then he gives, he gives the, 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 the key point, as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks, that's one gift. Whoever serves, that's another gift. This is the shortest reference to spiritual gifts in the Bible. So I thought I would, what I would do is just take a couple of minutes. I, I have a, uh, a section. Um, it's on a lot of things I've done, but uh, in 1 Corinthians, and I've taught that on spiritual gifts. And so I decided just to download in a print copy a couple of the slides from my presentation on spiritual gifts. So that's what this is in front of you, okay? So I, I think that's an important issue. Peter addresses it here in only two, uh, two, three verses. The longest concentrations of it are at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And then there's another section in Ephesians 4. So uh, let's, let's walk through this real quickly. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be quickly, but we'll walk through this. But it's, it's really building on what Peter says in 10 and 11 and really into uh, uh, the end of that, that passage and everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, which is the purpose of this. Are you with me in what I'm doing here with this? What sheet are you starting on here? What, what? I'll be right at the front, definition. That's, it should be front and back for you. Um, and uh, uh, so just, you know, focus. First of all, um, a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, now this is kind of a, de- that's my definition of it, is a divine endowment of a special ability for service given to each member of Christ's body, or you could put a put in brackets, a divine enablement. Now, um, an endowment of a special ability. In, in other words, it may match and often does match a talent or a, a, a special passion you have just because of who you are. But what is important is it's a divine endowment and a divine enablement for service. And, and Peter mentions that, indeed, in, in the middle of verse 11. So it isn't given for you to feel good about yourself. It isn't given, given so you pat yourself in the back of how great you are in serving God. It is to serve others. It, I mean, you follow what I'm saying? So what I did was, at the bottom of that slide, is to show you where spiritual gift comes from. In 1 Corinthians 12, is the longest discussion about this in the Bible, he uses the word spiritual, which in Greek is pneumatikos, and then the word gift, which is charisma. So you put it together, spiritual gift. But it is something that the Holy Spirit gives to each person when they come to faith in Christ. Does it mean just one? No. That's, you can't conclude that. It doesn't necessarily mean one. But it's what God, God gives, a divine enablement to serve others. Because, and you have to think about that. Why? Because our natural tendency is to be selfish and self-centered. And I don't want to help anybody. I don't want to, I want to do everything for myself. A divine enablement, a spiritual gift, is given for service to others. And then I, I thought about this a lot. And so what I did on the next slide, the nature of spiritual gifts, are just trying to pull together all the threads in the New Testament how do we talk about the spiritual gift in terms of its nature and what it is? First of all, they're distributed by the ascended Jesus Christ. 
That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. It is Jesus that ha- is, is kind of the, the sovereign deliverer of them, and it's the Holy Spirit who does it. They're distributed to every believer. They're distributed to edify other believers. That's probably, I don't know if you highlight things or mark things, that's, that's the most important item. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to edify the body, to edify other people. Do you know what edify means? To build up. It can take a lot of to encourage, to motivate, but to build up. And so it again, it is, it is for the body of Christ. It is for the church. And the, and the church organically, all believe, not just the building down the block type of, of, of meaning of church. So it's, it again, it's to serve, to edify other people. Now, I, you know, I, uh, please understand the spirit which I'm saying this, but I came to the conclusion many years ago that my primary spiritual gift is teaching. And so that's, that's how I've wanted to use that gift throughout all my life, since 1972 when I came to the of the Lord. And it's more and more, even in these last, oh, maybe 20 years of my life, I've really seen the importance of that third bullet, to edify others. Now, what he just said to the glory of God, that he's grown and he's being transformed, not by me, but by God's word, through just whatever I'm doing and teaching and explaining. The application, use of it is what God's doing. They're distributed sovereignly by the Spirit. And that's that's very clear in in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but sovereignly. um, In other words, he decides and when you look at how it's discussed in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and to an extent 12, uh, Romans 12, what, what Paul does in all three of those passages is as the Spirit sovereignly distributes, when you put it all together, you have a beautiful functioning system of believers where one is weak in one area, another is strong in another area. Where one that person who's strong in this area may be weak in another, and the person who's weak in this area is strong in this area. So as they work together and serve together, and it's it's something that I've watched in my wife's life, and it's been really fascinating to to my my wife's one year younger than I am, and she's I think some of you know I've got some health issues. That the one is is life threatening, but I've watched as she has grown chronologically, also grown spiritually in the Lord. Because of her physical condition, her priorities and passions have shifted out of necessity. But my wife is a genuine prayer warrior. I mean, if Peggy says she's going to pray for you, I absolutely guarantee you. If she says that, she will pray for you. You ought to see her prayer journal, her prono book. Every day she has a set of things she prays for, but there's a she has a rotating thing of people she prays for. And uh, I say all that because that's edifying. That's edifying other people, whether they know it or not. It's building other people up. You're praying specifically for them, and so on. And that uh, prayer is a gift. The desire to pray is a gift. The passion for praying is a gift. And then as they, as it's very clear in every one of those passages, these are distributed as salvation on the basis of grace. Because charisma, or charis, in Greek, is also translated grace. So you really could translate pneumatikos charisma, a spiritually energized grace 
from God. You didn't earn it, you didn't merit it, but God gives it to you, this enablement to serve others. Okay? Does that make sense, or do you want me to explain any of this? Or I mean, it's just, again, it's kind of a... Then what I did in the next slide, the third slide, is just there are four major passages. We're studying one of them, 1 Peter 4.11, but you can see the other ones, like Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. You have a long listing of gifts. And um, this is not the reason we're studying this, so I'm not going to go through all of these. That's not the purpose. It would take us a couple of hours to do this, to adequately go through every single one of these. But you can see, if you look at the Romans 12 one or the 1 Corinthians 12 one, you see a fairly extensive listing, and they're all dealing with serving people. They're all dealing with serving the church. Get a leadership role. Can be a role of of teaching or preaching. It could be in role of, of ministering. Ministering is such a broad term. Giving, ruling, it's they're the leaders of the church, and so on. <clears throat> and then it continues on that next slide. And then I ask the question at the bottom, does the New Testament list all the gifts? D.A. Carson, who is a, a very... Uh, a very important New Testament scholar today. He's, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, he's written a book called Showing the Spirit, which I think is one of the best gift books on spiritual gifts in, in, uh, in the market right now. But he makes the case, and I'm somewhat convinced by that, that we don't have an exhaustive list, list of the gifts. In other words, what we have are like categories, but there are many, many spiritual enablements that God gives. So these are more suggestive than exhaustive. I maybe have lost you in, in the point I'm making it. If I did, it's not that important anyway. And what, again, um, some of the gifts that are listed there, I, I think a case can be made that some of the gifts are temporary, or foundational, and others are more permanent. And by foundational in terms of the church, when it was founded at Pentecost. And this is, I'm not going to die for this, uh, but this is a way, in the years that I've studied this and tried to think about this, the way in which the materials laid out in the New Testament at least lends itself that there were certain foundational gifts. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then what's built on that are the other parts of, of the church. But that's not as important, and I, I don't know, maybe I should have left some of that out. But the others, again, these are like categories. If you look at that last slide on the right-hand side of the column, the gift of mercy. I mean, just think about it. That is so broadly stated. What does that mean, the gift of mercy? That can, that can have a lot of very specific uh, manifestations to it. That's why, again, Carson suggests that we don't necessarily have an exhaustive listing of all the gifts. Uh, and particularly those that are the permanent category, we have like categories. And there's so many things that can fit into that. But again, and that's certainly what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, that if God has given you a gift, be a good steward of it which is his main point in verse 10. So now let me stop. I wanted to just give you an overview, and this is kind of a 
handout. You might want to throw it away or, or use it to light your fire next week because it seems to I'm hearing this rumor we're finally going to get into winter, but maybe not. But you might want to use it to light your fire at your home. You know, but if you don't want it, that's fine. Just uh, recycle it or burn it or something. So I'm curious about Carson's concept of being sub-gifts or subsets. To, I mean, would I be correct, for example, when you look at teaching, for example, I mean, it could be teaching as you're doing here, could potentially be an academic kind mm -hmm. of a function, mm -hmm. could be mentoring. Mm -hmm. I mean, are those the mm -hmm. kind of subsets that you would see that? Well, yeah, what, what, what Carson argues is, that, and I, I'm somewhat persuaded by that, actually, that what the, what, what, what the New Testament does is it itemizes out for us categories of gifts. And then there are so many ways in which that can be manifested or, or, or carried out. And you just gave a great illustration of it. Uh, and I mean, and I, I used that example of mercy. That's such a broad, but what, it's so many ways in which you can think about that as a spiritual endowment or a spiritual enablement to serve other people. I mean, it, there's almost no limits to it. <laughs> and I think that's why I, I, I can't say it's been a major issue in the last couple of years of my life, but I've, I've had people, because I used to travel a lot and preach, do conference work all over the world, but I used to have people come up if I was doing something in First Corinthians to be so frustrated. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. And I've got to find my spiritual gift. Now, probably you've never even thought about that. But, you know, somebody, when they really they come to know Christ and they want to get busy and serve, and what's my spiritual <laughs> gift? You know the answer to that? Start serving the Lord. Just start serving. And, and take advantage of opportunities, and other people are going to affirm you. They're going to help give you direction. And you're going to start to be able to discover, how has God gifted me to serve others? I think most of the time, that's another thing that will be on what I want to do now, but I don't think, I don't think God just all of a sudden, now Jim can, can preach like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did for decades in London. Well, well maybe, but probably not. But Jim has, a, Jim has administrative gifts. Jim has, I mean, those guys. And so whatever his, it's going to fit with who he is and how God's made him. It's just now there's a supernatural enablement that, that he will use in the body to serve others, to edify others. So, anyway. What is the degree for pastor-teacher? Well, uh, the, the teacher is uh, didaskalos, and pastor is, is really, it's like shepherd. It's like, uh, what is the Greek word for that? I forget the... It's, uh, it's sometimes translated as shep shepherd, because that's what a pastor really is. I can't remember the exact Greek word there, Fred, I'm sorry. But actually, what some people suggest in the way it's used there in Ephesians 4, that's actually the same gift, pastor slash teacher. It's the same gift. That's, that's why I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded by that, that it is yeah, it's the same gift. Mm. They, they say if you see... Teacher, it should be pastor teacher. Yeah, I'm I'm persuaded that that's probably the right way to think about that too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, again, you can do with this what you want, but I it, Peter mentions it here, and I thought this is a teachable moment to just introduce you to some more of how the New Testament looks at this issue. I like Robin Hood. That's why my phone's like that. <laughs>
I'm still living in medieval Europe, you know, <laughs> the knights and all that. Let's look again at Ephesians, uh, sorry, at First Peter chapter 4. Let me just read this one more time, make a few more comments, then we'll move into the, the last part of chapter 4. As each of you has received a gift, and again, that's what we just looked at, charisma, use it to serve one another. That's consistent throughout the New Testament. And then the next phrase, as good stewards of God's various grace, karatas. And stewards, we get our word economy from that. It's oikonomia. So again, just put those two together. God's given you a gift. Be a good steward of it. Manage it well. Use it well. He's going to tell that. Tell us a little more about it. He uses two illustrations. Whoever speaks, as one speaks, oracles of God. Now, oracles. They're translating there. It's a good translation, actually. But that, that's not a word we use very often. But oracles, uh, who speaks the prophetic, authoritative teachings of God. Now, when Peter was writing this epistle in A.D. 61, it was primarily the Old Testament. As whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, you broad, but you serve, and that's what a spiritual gift is, the strength that God supplies. Now look at this last clause. The purpose of all of this is that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And that's really, it's really important Peter put that there. Because the purpose and intended result of a gift is not self-elevation. It's not warm fuzzies. It's not feel good about yourself. It's that God may be glorified. Now that's that's certainly not a new truth for anyone that studied the scriptures, but it's just a good reminder. That's why I, um, I, I think I'm going to be okay saying this. I, I hope I don't get anyone upset about it. But that's why we, we have to always be very, very careful about some of the things that you might hear on, on national television or some of the, like coming out of the charismatic Pentecostal uh, traditions. Um, sometimes when you hear some of those people speak, I've been around um, those fellowships quite a lot over my life. The, the focus is really, do you want to feel good about yourself? This is the path to do that. You know, speak in tongues. You know, all the, 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 the kind of things that make you feel good about yourself. Now, men, I don't think I'm saying anything that's shocking to you, but genuine biblical Christianity is not to help you feel good about yourself. You're a sinner. You're depraved. You're broken. You need to find Jesus Christ, not to feel good about yourself, but to be able <coughs> to have a relationship with the living God. And then he's going to help you get rid of the crud. So it's not to help you feel good about yourself. It's to recognize how how serious your issues are, and that Christ is going to help you get rid of all this junk. So, I mean, in the long run, I guess you could say maybe, but it, the goal of this is not to feel good about yourself. The goal of all that Jesus has done for us is that we recognize truly who we are, and that only Christ can cleanse us from this junk that's a part of us, so that we can then be free to serve, serve him and serve others. I mean, if you follow what I'm saying, because I, 
I don't. I just don't watch anymore because I can't. I can. I can't hardly do it without getting so emotionally upset. But I used to hear some of these people say that you come to Jesus and you're you're going to be wealthy. And there's a, it's not as widely spread. Name it and claim it. Just name it and claim it. It's yours. You want a Lexus? Name it. It's claim it. It's yours. To be very blunt, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so you can get a Lexus. I mean that. that that's really, that's, that's a prostitution of the gospel. He died so you can get all the crud of your life cleaned up so you can serve him and bring glory to him. It may, it may involve a Lexus, but that's not the gospel. <laughs> but you know that. So I won't say any more about that. Okay? And Peter just can't help himself. I mean, he is just, he is so excited about what he's teaching. He, he launches into a mini doxology. He stood up and sang it. He got Handel to write it. That's, that's not in the Bible. I just made it up. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he, just, he's, he just can't contain himself. This mini doxology. And he just invites everybody to praise and bring glory to the Lord. Because look at those words. To him. Who's him? God. Belong glory and dominion. Dominion is a ruling word. It's a sovereign rule over his creation forever and ever. What is the only place of God's creation that doesn't recognize him as Lord? Planet Earth. It's the only place in God's world that doesn't recognize him as Lord. But there's coming a day when that will happen. Okay. All right. Now, we uh, had a little bit of a bunny trail there with the stuff on the spiritual gifts that I thought I'd do, but... Um, if you, if you follow in the, the little outline, we've, we've gone through this material now about how, how lives are changed by coming to Christ. And that's what Peter is doing. Now, Peter moves into chapter 5, which uh, the end of chapter 4, excuse me, which is one of the major themes of the book of, of 1 Peter, which he comes back to the matter of suffering. And I remember this is a, you know, it's a suffering church. They're in persecution and so on. All right, any questions or comments or thoughts before we move into this last section of chapter 4? You Are you with me or did, I mean, okay, yeah, uh, Glenn. I find it interesting back to, uh, I talked, uh, kind of made a comment a couple times about the voice compared to Paul. And a lot of the references, of, you got Corinthians, you have Ephesians in here. Absolutely. Um, and he doesn't, Break out into all the different different gifts. It, there's this assumption that you know what you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's right. That's that's right. That's, that's right. All right, good. Let's start. Uh, I don't think we'll get it finished, but let's start this. This is a, a little bit of a longer uh, discourse on the matter of suffering, but. He does it in such a way that is consistent with the way Paul addresses it and the way James addresses it. Verse 12 begins, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange, you could translate that alien, were happening to you. That's a profound verse. Don't be surprised. 
I don't know about you, but I'm constantly surprised and shocked when trials come my way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sitting around, you know, I wake up in the morning and Peggy and I pray together over breakfast and say, all right, Lord, we're waiting now for the trials of this day. And we embrace them with anticipation mm. and excitement. Have any of you ever prayed that way? No, that's silly. We don't do that. What Peter is saying, let's put this, let's put this in the larger context. What's the Bible say to us? We live in a broken world. We live in a rebellious world. Therefore, expect us. Peter says, I love how the ESV translates this, as something, as though something alien were happening to you. Strange were happening to you. It's like, don't be surprised. Don't pray for it. Don't invite it. Don't welcome it. But don't be shocked when it happens. Now, Peter does something here that I want to spend a couple of moments on. Now, he uses the word trial, and he connects the word trial to the word test. Did you see that? Now, Peter does not do this here. But in the Greek, the word trial and the word tent are the same Greek word. For example, this isn't this is first Peter here, but if you go to James, for example, James chapter uh, one, um, well, let's take it two through thirteen there. If you go to that, you, you'll see at the begin, Peter, uh, James says, um, consider it all joy when you counter various trials. Then you go to verse 13, he talks about temptation. They're exactly the same word. Now that's supposed to cause you to think a little bit. It's supposed to cause you to just, just consider that a little bit. What's the difference between trial and tempt? Here it tells us. A trial is testing us. Testing our what? Our faith. It's a test of our faith. A couple of years ago, well, I guess it was last year. Didn't we study Exodus in here? Didn't we part of Exodus? Well, I'm doing that in one of my other groups right now. They want to do that. So uh, we're in that part where they've they've been liberated from Egypt. They're headed toward Mount Sinai. And God says several times, I'm testing you. I'm testing your faith and dependence on me. And what, it's, it's to grow their faith. So what Peter is saying here is, when the fiery trials of life come, remember, they're a test. Now, that, you know, in the way we look at it in the 21st century, it's like an exam you have to pass. That's not what he means by this. A test, from God's perspective, is to grow your faith and your dependence on him, to grow your trust in him. That is the perspective we're supposed to have. But the context 
And that's what James does in verse 13 and following. That same Greek word can be translated tempt. What's the difference between a trial and a temptation? In my mind, the trial is actively happening to you. Tempt is the decision you make. Okay, what, if just in terms of English, just English definition, what's the definition of a, of a temptation? evil something that drives you towards okay it's not in and of itself it's not evil but it's something that's guiding you or enticing you or directing you toward evil was jesus tempted yes yes Yes. he was enticed to do that which is evil you know matthew 4 so on did jesus sin no No, he did not give into that temptation I'm sorry, now what do you want? I don't think the trial and tempt is that different. I mean, if you're tempted, it's going to be a, you know, you're going to, it's going to be a short. Can a trial turn into a temptation? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you are, you are absolutely correct. And that's what is so, not frustrating, but you have to, and, and in English, you don't see the difference, but the context as we study it in the original, you have to really determine, is a trial being focused upon and discussed here, or is a temptation being focused upon and discussed here? But you are right, Woody. In one level, there's not necessarily a difference between them. But at another level, there's a big difference between them. So, so let's look at it this way. Can you think of God being the author of a trial? Can you think of God being the author of a temptation? In in verse 13 of of James, uh, chapter 1, he says, it is impossible for God to tempt. That's how strong he puts it. I think both of them require you to remember your faith. Yes. Because the major antidote to temptation is to remember who you are. Who am I in Christ? I do not need to give in to this enticement to evil. I can resist this. And so on. And that's... The antidote is... The antidote... How would I say that? The antidote of temptation is what? What did I say? I don't remember what I said. I have to think back to the content. How was I saying this? Remember who you are. It's to remember who you are. The antidote to temptation is to remember who you are and that I do not need to give into this because of, of what Christ has done for me, because of who I am, because of my identity. And that's something we learn. I mean, you, we have to learn that as we respond to those things. Now, I'm saying all that because what Peter is doing here, because he, and correctly, I believe, the, the editors are translating this trial. Come upon to, and the reason they do that is because of what follows. When it comes upon, test you. Don't be surprised by that. So verse 13 is the intended goal that God has for this. So do not be surprised, verse 13, but rejoice. <coughs> so instead of being surprised... Rejoice. Who wants to do that? That's what James is saying in verse 1. Count it all joy when you count a various trials. We studied that a couple of years ago. 
But he tells us why that's so important. Because that's how God grows you. That's how you grow in dependence on him. And I remember I said this very distinctly in this room. That's God's curriculum for growth. And four of you said, I want to drop that course and register for a new course. And that there is no, there is no substitute for that in the curriculum. I'm trying to make it humorous, but Peter is saying precisely the same thing that James says, precisely the same thing Paul says. This is how God grows us. He pointed out to that in, in chapter 1, mm. uh, 6 and 7. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He's reiterating what he's already taught us. But now he brings in what we have seen him do before, but now it's a little more forceful. Be rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Let's think about that for just a minute. Peter is drawing a parallel between what Jesus endured and what we are called to endure. Did Jesus Christ's suffering bring glory to God? Yes. Did his suffering and trials bring grand and great beneficial good? Yes. So one of the principles that's rather clear is that God can take difficult suffering, difficult trials, and bring eternal good out of those. Can you can you explain if there's a, a distinction between my version that says sufferings of Christ mm-hmm. as opposed to sufferings that I, I wouldn't necessarily think are faith related like poverty or illness or something like that. Is there a distinction there or Okay, I, I'm hearing your words, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm. Are you, are you so saying what trials. Jesus suffered? There are trials. Compared to, yes, right. And, and Peter here, he talks about, I mean, you said we live in an evil world, and therefore we should anticipate trials. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect that that's primarily referring to trials of, of, of our faith, testing of our faith, maybe persecution and so on. So which I would say is a suffering, equivalent to suffering of Christ. But there are other trials that are just, you're sick, mm. or you're, a, say, a divorced mother, mother mm-hmm. of five, and wondering how you're going to live, or you know, your health is shattered, or something. And those can be trials too, but they're not necessarily. I wouldn't call them suffering for Christ. Or maybe I'm not clear. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. Now, and I get your question. That's actually an excellent question. Uh, It seems to me earlier in the in the book of First Peter, he was talking about the very specific types of suffering of persecution because of your faith, because of what you stand for, and, and you know as you're representing Christ in a pagan world and so on. Expect that to, to persecution and even extreme suffering to result. It seems to me here he's he's broadening this. It's more than just 
the suffering that might result from persecution or standing for Christ or representing Christ in a culture which is very antagonistic to Christ and so on. It, because of the way he puts it, the fiery trial that tests you as this is something strange happening to you, um, the response is, is one just like Christ. How did Christ. How did Christ respond to his suffering? That's the pattern you should respond, regardless of the nature of that. Now, so let's let's broaden this now, because this is really this is really difficult. It, it seems to me, but um, in a in a um, in a fallen and broken world, will will we see disease and sickness? Yes. In a fallen, broken world, will we see accidents and tragedies? You know, accidents, a car accident, but then I mean all kinds of accidents, like what happened out in Seattle the other day with that train. I mean, just all of those things. Just, and then, you know, add to that, will we expect to see tornadoes and storms and volcanic eruptions and earthquakes? Yes. I mean, it's just, you just go, so will we also expect to see poverty? And a lot of things cause poverty. Uh, it can be exploitation and oppression it causes poverty. It can be the nature of a particular uh, economy in a country or whatever. I mean, it's just all of those things. So taking all of those things together, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how do you respond to those? If you are involved in that suffering, look at it. Look at it the way Jesus looked at it, regardless of what that is. And, I mean, there are a lot of other things that the Scriptures talk about. And it's temporary. It's not going to last. There's a greater glory that awaits you. That's part of what's having that. But it's endure it now. Uh, then, if it's like poverty and so on, those who, who have uh, means and resources should be sensitive to that and help to resolve some of that, if we can, if we have the ability to do it. That's, but that's the other side of the of the issue. So I don't, you know, Jim, you're asking it very broadly. So that's kind of how I'm answering it very broadly. But it seems to me that he's he's talking here in a much broader context about the sufferings and difficulties of life. Let's not be surprised at that. And that's, you know, that's that's we I know we've talked about this before. The promises that God has made to us should affect how we live now. There are not always going to be accidents and disease and tragedies and earthquakes and volcanoes. It's not just going to be that. That's not going to characterize a new heaven and new earth. That's not going to characterize a world where there's no more evil. That's not going to characterize a world where Satan is no longer active, where there's no more sin I mean, those three things, as I just think about those three, I can't even imagine that in my finiteness. But that's what God promised. And so those future promises and future realities, that's part of, he doesn't specifically talk about that here, but that's part of what keeps us going. I know we've talked, that's what kept the American slave in the pre-Civil War South going. Those four million people that were enslaved, the Negro spirituals and the things that we, we Robert, Albert Arbato has written a great book on slave religion. He just talks about that. As, as horrific as slavery was, and it was horrible, 
it was genuine biblical Christianity that kept many of them going. So I think that back to Jim's question, uh, the the test of 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 an illness is Mm -hmm. is really a trial. It's a test of our faith, but it could be a temptation. And when you feel a temptation, you can either go back up to have your to your faith, or it can go yield to something else which is not not faith. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get into this. I don't want to give into this temptation, this enticement to give up, yeah. and and renounce. No, no, no I'm not going to do that. Yeah, yeah no, that's. I understand, but, but, yeah. but, is, but, but the, uh, with the temp, with the, when tempted, you have you have a choice. Mm, you do. It, uh, that's good. That, that's all I'm saying. You have yes, a choice. Yes, you do. That's good. That's good. Yeah, Choice, even if it's not a, if it's a trial, you you re- determine how to react to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether it emanates from a dis- natural disaster or whether, you know, it's you know something from persecution, you still choose, and you do. Your choices can have a significant impact on mm-hmm. your faith. What, mm-hmm. Do they grow your faith? Do they cause you to stumble? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to see it? paraphrasing how Peter's presenting it, are you going to see it the way Christ saw it and the way we look at Christ's suffering? It's horrible what he went through. But the result of it was so eternally significant. Woody? If I'm to believe the introduction of First Peter in the ESV, I mean, it very plainly says the letter to encourage believers to endure the intense persecution that was prevalent in the area and prepare the readers for difficult times ahead. Then it goes on to talk about the brutal emperor Decius. Decius. Yeah, Decius. It's coming up. For the most part, he was trying to warn them that they were going to be persecuted against. They're going to probably have to uh, uh, deny their faith or they're going to be fed to the lions. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, tough times are coming. Be ready. Tough times are coming. And that, you know, we, we uh, it's, hard, it's hard to, in one sense, it's hard to talk about that in the United States in 2017 as we're nearing the end of this year. But, uh, you know, we do not know what the next five years are going to bring, 10 years or whatever for Lord Terry. So, well, it's, oh, I better stop here. It's approaching 10 up. So, well, man, thank you for a good year together and thank you for this. Christmas gift. I really appreciate that. And I'll say that on behalf of my wife, although I don't know what, I know she'll be absolutely thrilled with it, as she always is. And uh, we will then not meet next week, but we'll restart uh, on January the 3rd, basically two weeks from today. So have a Merry Christmas. I order you to have a nice, (laughs) do not, not have a nice Christmas. Let me prep here. Lord, we're, um, it's amazing to me personally, we're closing out another year. Two thousand seventeen. Thank you for these men and others who are not here. I think of Fred. He's been struggling with some things these last couple of weeks. I hope you continue to help him recover and recuperate and be strengthened. We'll look forward to hopefully seeing him in a couple of weeks. And pray for the other men here and those who are not here today. Give everyone a wonderful holiday break. Uh, it's hard to believe for me personally. Next Monday is Christmas, so as we really do remember and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. That is the, the, the great watershed event of, of genuine biblical Christianity. The Savior of the world has come. 
Uh, we did not have to go to you. You came to us to redeem us and to give us another way of living. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. Thank you for each one of these men, for their generosity, for their faithfulness, for their love. And I ask you to especially bless them as this year closes and we begin a new year. Our goal, Lord, is always to teach and share and study the Word of God together so that your work of transformation continues. Because it really is your Word through your Holy Spirit that changes men and, and others who hear it and study it and apply it to their lives. And that message of transformation that the gospel brings is what brings hope. Thank you for each man. Give him a good and blessed Christmas. And we ask you to continue to work in each one of our lives so that we can represent you well. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See you in uh, uh, two weeks.